just to give you a quick little snapshot of what we're doing in RUF and what RUF really is all about is uh, we're, we're trying to create a safe place here on campus where regardless of what you believe, you can find a safe place to explore the truth claims of Christianity with us here in a safe, non-threatening, no-pressure context, and hopefully it's fun along the way. And um, So what we're doing this particular semester is we're working through the earliest written account about the person and the life of Jesus. And so we're asking that question, who is he? And really, why does he matter? Why does that question even matter? So we're going through the book of Mark, which is that early book document that I was talking about. So if you have a, a sheet in front of you, you can reference this, or if you happen to have brought a Bible with you, you can turn to Mark chapter 2. If you don't have one of these, there are a few sprinkled around, so grab a sprinkle and um, look on with us and... We'll look at Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. It reads this. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. This is God's word for us. If you would, let me pray, and then we'll consider it together, okay? Let's pray. Father, we would ask that in your mercy you would meet with us. We come into this room in all sorts of different conditions, guilty, fearful, angry, depressed, excited, tired, Father, for all the different places that we are, I pray that you would convince us that we really are all more alike than we think we are. We're all much more broken, all much more needy, all much more desperate for your grace than we really think we are. So will you meet with us? Will you commune with us? Will you feed us by your word and with your spirit? And we would pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I went to school at the University of Oklahoma, which is in a small college town of, you know, in Norman, Oklahoma. And one of the uh, things that you do when you're in a small college town, not that Knoxville is a small college town, but if you were in my shoes, one of the things that you would do is you would drive around and look for things to do because you're bored a lot of the time. Well, we happen to have found um, an abandoned slaughterhouse on one of our adventures out looking through Oklahoma. And it was in a forest, and it was this huge, you know, 
place where they would bring in cows and slaughter them and process the meat. And it hadn't been in operation for like 20 or 30 years, but uh, there it was in this creepy forest. And my junior year of college, me and, a group, me and a friend of mine decided to take a group of freshmen that we had become friends with and try to go into the slaughterhouse. So to set this up for you, we're driving, we make our way through, uh, you know, you, you kind of have to drive around through the back of this thing that's in the forest. And keep in mind, it's, it's dark. We didn't want to get caught by, you know, caught by the police. We went at night. It's dark. It's creepy because the only light that you really have to navigate is either your flashlight or the moonlight. You know, moonlight's like eerie and creepy in the middle of a forest with a death building that you're about to go into. So we go around to the back of this thing, and we find this um, aluminum siding that you can kind of peel back and step into. And so that's what we did. We peel it back, and all of us kind of step into this thing. There's this little group of us. And keep in mind, on the inside of this thing, pitch black dark. All you can see is where the flashlight goes. And there would be, like, you know, trash and empty beer cans and, like, dirty stuffed animals like in the corners like really weird creepy and uh, completely dark all you could see is wherever the flashlight was in front of you completely silent except for like you could kind of hear the metal swaying in the wind or like there were some trees you could feel like you could hear the branches screeching against the side of it it was like out of a Chernobyl diary so y'all remember that movie this is the image that's in my mind so we're going through this place huddled together inching through this thing and we come upon this rickety, precarious, unsafe set of stairs going up to the second floor. So we have to go up them. And we go up them. And we make our way up to the second floor. And the second floor is where, I guess, the cows were actually butchered. It was like the killing room, I guess, because there were, there were stalls and there were drainage holes in the, on the bottom where the blood would flow down. And um, I hope no one's uh, queasy like I just got from that. But um, <laughs> blood would flow down. And... Uh, so we're up there, and we're like, you know, we're, we're, we've kind of had our fun at this point. It's kind of weird. It's kind of spooky. It's, it's, um, it's pretty eerie. And while we're up there, we hear something downstairs. It's this big, like, boom noise, like the slamming up against the wall. And we, you know, we scream. The girls in our group scream. And we all huddle together. We're all, like, panting and screaming. We're trying to calm everybody down, shush everybody down so that we can listen. And we're listening. All you can hear is the swaying. And then you hear it again. Boom! And so sure enough, something's down there. And we have to convince these you know, freshmen that that's the only way out, at least as far as we know. So we have to go back down there. So we kind of are gathering our wits, and we're about to decide, okay, we've got to go downstairs. And so as we're about to kind of make our way back down to whatever that is down there, we hear something from behind us. And so we scan the flashlight. This is not a lie. And emerging out of the darkness is a, an old bearded man wearing camouflage. <laughs> so we scream. And we start running down the stairs. And as we're running down the stairs, because these stairs are in such bad condition, I and mean, there's some stairs that are missing, one of the freshman girls falls through one of the stairs, catches herself by her elbows, and her legs are dangling into nothingness. She's screaming, she's crying. We pick her up, and we get downstairs, and now we're freaking out trying to find out where is that aluminum siding that we came in on. We're scanning the room, and as we're scanning the flashlight around, sure enough, a second man who is bearded, camouflaged, running towards us, swinging a chain. So... So at this point... 
we revert into uh, primal instincts, and we're pushing each other and screaming and just running face first into the darkness. We find the aluminum siding. We get out. Yes, that's how I run. We get out of the aluminum. We get the, the aluminum siding. Get to the car. Make it home safe. And even the girl that fell through, you know, had some scratches, and she, you know, she was banged up, but she was okay for the most part. Now. What these freshman girls didn't know is that the two guys in the slaughterhouse were my friends, <laughs> dressed up as homeless people. And what they didn't know is that we had planned the whole thing and that we did this quite regularly to, uh, to people that we wanted to terrorize. Now, our friends, our sweet freshman friends, you know, they, they thought that their biggest problem was, you know, these two guys in this abandoned slaughterhouse that were trying to come and kill them. But that was not their biggest problem. Their biggest problem was that they just, they just had crappy older friends that would do this to them. And the reason I'm bringing this up in the whole place to begin with is actually something very similar is going on in this story. The story that we just read is uh, what Jesus is doing. He's pressing in on you to think, okay, you think you know what your biggest problem is. And actually, you're out of touch with reality. Your biggest problem is not what you think it is. And so really, what I want to draw your attention to as we kind of jump into this passage is that Jesus redefines our problems. That's the first thing I want you to see. You may think you know what your biggest problem is. He's going to redefine it for you. That's the first thing we're going to look at. Jesus redefines our problems. So let's look at the story. The story opens up by drawing our attention to the like magnetism, the celebrity of Jesus. He's preaching to this packed house. It's standing room only. The, the, the place is completely just packed with people. And that presents a problem for this group of guys that we learn about in verse 3. There's four guys, and they have a friend that is a paralytic, somebody that cannot move. And they are so convinced that Jesus can do something about it that they bring their friend to Jesus. But because the room is so packed... They can't get him in front of Jesus. So they do what any normal person would do, right? Is to climb on the roof and rip a hole in it and then lower your paralyzed friend down by a rope, which is what they do while Jesus is preaching. And as he's doing that, as he's preaching, here comes the dude lowered through the roof. And Jesus looks at them and he looks at the guy, the paralytic, and he says to him, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, I would imagine this would be the point where, like, the record would skip and the music would stop and everyone would be like, what? Sins? Who said anything about sins? In fact, if you think about it, if you're the guy that's dangling from the rope and you're thinking, okay, um, that's nice, Jesus. Thank you, I guess, for that. But um, I still can't walk, and that's kind of why I'm here. What's going on? What's Jesus doing? Here's what he's doing. He's basically saying to this guy, and he's saying to us, your circumstances, your pain, your suffering, they're not your biggest problem. I'm more in touch with what your biggest problem is. If I heal you, that may fix you on the surface, but that doesn't deal with the core deep issue that I really need to deal with if I'm going to actually enter into your life and heal you. And what is that? Well, he's talking about this thing that the Bible refers to as sin, which is just another way of saying the selfish condition of your heart. And so Jesus is looking at the student saying, look, you, know, you came to me to get your body healed, but that, doesn't, that will not fix your problems. 
That will not ultimately heal you. I've got to fix you at a deeper core issue, the deeper inner selfishness of your own heart. And this happens a lot. You know, I know of a lot of students that come to RUF or have come to RUF or come to church and get really interested in God because something really awful has happened in their life. You know, you, you um, experience a breakup with a boyfriend or girlfriend, and, and because of that, you get really serious about God. Or you have really serious major, you know, family issues, and that's when you start really kind of going to church again and exploring RUF or, you know, whatever. Or, you know, you're experiencing depression or you're overwhelmed with school or you're in some sort of addiction or something, and that's when you start getting really serious about God. It's the same way with this dude. This guy comes to Jesus because something really awful has happened in his life. And I want you to know, by the way, Jesus never, ever, ever minimizes those things. He t- I think he takes those things very seriously. As you're going to see as this story goes on, he does deal with this dude's paralysis. He does deal with his circumstances. But what he's saying on the front end is saying, if that's all I do, that's not deep enough. If you come to me and you want me to fix your relationship with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, you want me to help you get an A in that class, you want me to you know, fix your depression or your addiction or being overwhelmed with school, I can do all that. I'm, I'm able, willing, I would love to do all of that. But if that's all I do and that's all you are coming to me for, I'm basically just a handyman to you. I'm just a handyman to kind of fix up your life here and there and put little tweaks and change things and kind of fix your life, but that doesn't deal with the deep inner problem that you actually have. Example. Um, When I was in high school, there was a guy below me who um, kind of had one of these celebrity conversions. You know what I'm talking about? He's like, um, he was the guy that was involved in drugs and partied all the time and kind of went around with a bad crowd and um, came to find Jesus. And he had this kind of amazing conversion. He got deeply involved in the youth group and uh, everyone loved him. He quickly became a leader. He was constantly asked to tell his testimony at church or other churches around the, uh, you know, kind of the city I grew up in, Dallas, Texas, which is large. And um, so he's speaking around at all these different places. He forms a little Christian band. He sings, you know, Christian songs at the youth group. He's like the poster kid, like youth group kid of the year dude. And all the parents want their daughters to date him. And he was that guy, youth group kid, youth group kid of the year. And so I go off to uh, school where I learned to terrorize freshmen and slaughterhouses. And when I come back after my sophomore year, this guy has uh, kind of gone wild. And he's left the church, and he's kind of gone back in with the bad crowd. And how do you explain that? How do you explain the youth group kid gone wild? <laughs> I mean, this, this is true. This happens. You may know people like this. This may be your story. This may be your story where you come to UT and you were that person. You were the person that your youth pastor called me to tell me, you know, this person's coming. Be on the lookout for them because RUF is so lucky to have them and they're going to convert the entire campus through your ministry and you're so, you know, you're privileged to have this person come in your ministry and you get here and you move in and you start hanging out with different friends and um, these friends don't particularly care about Jesus or don't think that it's interesting that you played guitar in your youth group. In fact, they thought that was lame. You start dating someone that doesn't really care about God or spirituality. You start making out with the red solo cup. You know, you start going down that road. (laughs) And so... (laughs) That was a freebie. You can quote me on that one. (laughs) Maybe that's your story, though, where you get here and really that's, that's, that's your life. And, and, and that was the life of this guy in my youth group. And, and here's what I want you to see, is that this guy in my youth group, he never, 
He never loved Jesus. He just loved the blessings and the benefits that Jesus provided for him. He never loved Jesus. He just loved being patted on the back. He loved being in the spotlight. He loved everybody telling him how great and good of a person he was. He loved all the benefits and the blessings that came with Jesus, but he never actually loved Jesus. Because when he got into this different group of friends that didn't care about Jesus, what was he doing? He's serving the same exact thing. He's serving and he's living for other people's approval of him. In both scenarios, youth group people and party people, he's both serving people's approval. Because he never dealt with the deep down thing in his heart, the real issue of his selfish need for other people's validation, other people's approval, he was the youth group kid gone wild. And so look, if you come to Jesus because you want him to fix little things about your life, your relationship with your boyfriend or girlfriend, the bad test score that you got, your family, Jesus is going to look at you again and say, look, I can fix all of that for you. I can, but that's not going deep enough. I've got to deal with the deep down issue of your sin, your selfishness. If that doesn't get dealt with, I'm just a handyman. I'm not your savior. So that's the first thing that we see here, is that Jesus completely redefines our problems. You think your biggest problem is your circumstances. You think your biggest problem is X, Y, or Z. And he says, no, it's something much, much deeper. But secondly, he doesn't just redefine our problems. He redirects our problems. And that's the second thing I want to draw your attention to. So let's bore down a little bit into this one statement. But think about it like this. Um, Let's say that I'm hanging out with you and a friend, and we're chilling at the UC. And the three of us are hanging out, having lunch together. And let's say we're in kind of this friendly debate. We're arguing something, debating something. And you say something that your friend is really offended by. You say something that your friend uh, is hurt by. So this friend takes their cup of Coke and throws it in your face. And you're wet and embarrassed and angry and confused. And everybody in the UC is looking at y'all. And we're sitting there together. And it's just kind of that weird, awkward moment. And so I look at your friend that did this to you and say, hey, 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 I forgive you for that. Now, if I said that, you would be thinking at some level, in some jumbled form, you would be thinking, uh, you're not the one with Coke on you, though. You can't say that to him. He's the one that threw that on me. You can't forgive somebody for something that they did to somebody else. You can only forgive somebody if they did something bad to you, because that's how forgiveness works, Matt. So look at what Jesus says. Look at what Jesus says. He looks at the guy, and in verse 5, he says, I forgive your sins. Which implies your sins have been against me. And nobody else could say that unless you were God himself. Which is why in verse 6 and 7, the very next verses, the religious people, the religious, the religious teachers rightly conclude, okay, Jesus is claiming to be God right now. He's not claiming to be just some miracle worker who can go around and do kind of cool special effects to people. What he's doing is he's claiming to be God by saying, I forgive your sins. Your sins have been against me. And they're like, that's crazy. That's blasphemous. But here's what we have to do. Here's the challenge. Jesus is pressing us, I think, indirectly to think about our sin in reference to him. Our failures, our flaws, our errors, our um, willful defiance are not just character flaws in us, but that they're actually assaults against him. I mean, You've got to wrap your mind around this because this is actually really, um, this kind of presses us where we don't want to be pressed. Because what this means is, you may be someone who says, you know, getting hammered 
is not that big of a deal. I mean, it's okay, we're in college, this is just kind of what you do here. What's the big deal? And, and then you maybe even supply some sort of arbitrary condition like, uh, well, as long as you don't get belligerent or violent or whatever, then it's okay. Or maybe you're someone who says, well, you know, okay, I'm 19, I'm 20, I'm almost 21. Breaking the law is not that big of a deal. And what Jesus is saying to you, which I think is really um, upfront, is he's saying, you don't get to determine right or wrong on that issue. I do. And actually, those issues are not just sort of assaults against you or your neighbor. They're also assaults against me, ultimately. Ultimately against me. I mean, that's what he's saying. Or maybe you're someone who um, has a group of friends that really encourage you and foster a real deep inner self-righteousness and hatred for other people on this campus or other groups on this campus because you're right and they're wrong. So you may be even friends with people who biblically justify hatred or self-righteousness in you to say, okay, well, the, the group that I feel very hostile to, the group that I don't want anything to do with, it's the homosexual group. Or maybe it's the group over here, it's the atheists. Or it's that group that has a very different political stance than I do. And what Jesus is doing, he's looking at you and he's saying, look, that self-righteous bigotry is an assault against me. I mean, do you see what he's doing? This is crazy. He's redirecting our problem that it's against him. It's not just us being messy, bad people. It's that we've offended God. So he's redefining our problems. He's redirecting our problems. But lastly, where's our hope in this? Because if that's true, then we're kind of hopeless. But the last thing we see, thankfully, is he doesn't just redefine them and redirect them. He resolves them. He resolves our problems. So look at this. After he announces to this paralytic, your sins are forgiven. Part of what the religious leaders are thinking at this point is this. Jesus, that's very convenient. Here you're presented with this guy with this unsolvable, impossible, unfixable problem. And you just say, hey, your sins are forgiven. That sounds very spiritual. But the problem with that is you can't prove it. You can't validate it. Here's this problem. Paralytic guy. And you're going into like spiritual forgiveness land. Easy cop out. So here's what Jesus does. Look at Jesus' response in verse uh, 9 and 11. I think 9 through 11. I think it's brilliant, actually. Here's what he says. He looks at them and says, okay, what's easier? You tell me which, which of these two options is easier. Option one, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. Or option two, to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And he got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. Here's what he's doing. He's entering into their logic. And he's saying, okay, you think it's harder to heal somebody than it is to forgive them. So to prove that I have the power and the authority to forgive somebody, I'll heal them. And that's what he does. And he looks at them and he says, take your mat and go home. He gets up, he's healed instantly, magically, I don't know how. And he walks out in front of everybody. But here's what Jesus is doing. He's saying, okay, you think that's the easier of the two options. But actually, it's the, it's the exact opposite. For the Pharisees, it's easier to say, I forgive you, than it is to heal them. For Jesus, it's harder to say, I forgive you, than it is to heal them. Here's why. Because to heal this man, what did it cost Jesus? It cost him like two seconds of his day. 
cost him breath. Go take your mat and go home. But to forgive this man, it would cost Jesus his life. Now, why is that? Jesus knew, as soon as I pronounce forgiveness to this man, it's going to cost me my life. I'm going to have to die for this man in order to be able to say that to him. The claim of the Christian gospel is that Jesus dies for your sin. You know this. You've heard this. But have you ever thought, why Why does Jesus have to die? I mean, that sounds kind of bizarre. Okay, well, think about it like this. Anytime somebody hurts somebody else, there is a debt that is created. Anytime there's a wound done between two people, there is a, there's a debt that needs to be paid. Example, financially speaking, let's say you came to my house and you broke my Xbox 360. That would not be a good day for either of us. But let's say you did that. A debt has been created because now either you have to pay for that, which means you give me money and I go out and buy one, or you just give me your Xbox, I guess. You, you pay the debt, or if I say I forgive you, what am I communicating to you? I'm communicating to you, I'm not going to make you pay for this, I will. And I'll either just go without an Xbox, or I'll go and shell out money myself and buy one. That's how it works. Whenever there's a wound that is done, there's a debt that's created, and either one of the two parties has to pay for it. That's how it works financially, but it also works that way relationally. Think about it. If someone hurts you, or attacks your reputation, or takes something from you that you can't get back, hurts you, there's a real debt that is created. There's a real violation of justice. They owe you in some way. And we even use that kind of monetary language to say, I'm going to make them pay for this. So how do we make them pay? We hurt them back. We make them pay the penalty. We, we damage their reputation. We take something from them. We, we make them pay for it. Or if we say, I'm going to forgive you, what are we doing? We're, we're absorbing the cost of that hit, of that wound. I mean, do you know how painful that is? Do you know how unbelievably painful it is when someone has hurt you, wounded you deeply, and everything in you wants to retaliate, everything in you wants to simmer, and you fight that impulse to actually extend grace to them. That, that's painful. That's hard. Okay, some of you may be saying, okay, I get it. Forgiveness, any form of forgiveness is always going to be costly. It's always going to be, entail some form of suffering. But still, why does Jesus have to die, though? I forgive people all the time. I'm not going around dying for everybody. What, what's the whole death thing about? Okay? Think about it like this. Let's say you come up here on stage and you slap me right now. What would happen? Everybody would I don't, be awkward, feel awkward, maybe. Uh, I would be embarrassed. But as far as, like, your legal consequences, it would not be, uh, basically nothing would happen to you. Now, what if you went up and you did that same exact thing, just a little backhand, to Chancellor Cheek on the cheek? <laughs> Killing it tonight. Um, what if you slap Chancellor Cheek? Same exact thing. Same exact thing, now radically different consequences. My guess is you would be arrested. You'd probably be thrown in jail. You would, uh, I I guess, would be kicked out of school. Same exact offense, radically different consequences. Okay, take it a step further. What if you slapped President Obama? Walked up to Obama and tried to backhand him? My guess is Secret Service would take you out before you were even able to connect. I mean, they would just tackle you or shoot you on the spot, no questions asked. Now you're dead. Now, so, okay, here's the, here's the question. No more slapping for you. Why is 
it that you take that one little minor thing, slapping somebody, and you start with me, but you move it up through the hierarchy of importance and authority, and the consequences get radically bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Why is that? Well, okay, what happens then when you slap God, as it were? When you just commit one little minor offense against him, one little white lie, one little whatever, it doesn't have to be big, but it's this little thing applied to infinite authority, infinite importance. Now the consequences are massive. Now the consequences are enormous. And that debt has to be paid for. And like I said, either you have to pay for that or God has to pay for that. And the reality is there are some of you in this room right now that are trying to pay off that debt. And the way that you're trying to pay it off is you're trying to be really, really, really good. Trying to be really good, faithful Christians. So you go to church every week. You go to Crossroads every Monday night. You go to RUF every Tuesday night. You go to Young Life every Wednesday night. You go to Crew every Thursday night. And then whatever's going on on Friday, I don't know. But you're you're reading the Bible every week, every day. You're praying every day. You're working really hard on your language, working really hard on your lust, working really hard on your greed, and you're trying and you're trying and you're trying. And if you were honest, you would admit to yourself, this feels hopeless, and it feels like I'm getting nowhere. And I feel like I'm this mouse running on one of those wheels where you're running as hard and as fast as you can and you're getting nowhere and you're exhausted and it feels like slavery and it feels like drudgery because there's no freedom in your life. There's no joy in your life. Some of you are trying to pay off that debt with your own goodness and you're experiencing the bitterness of that it's not working. You know, Arcade Fire, great album out. They have this line in one of their old songs um, that goes like this. Do you really think your righteousness can pay the interest on your debt? It's a great line. Do you really think your righteousness, your goodness, your faithfulness on campus can really pay off the interest of your debt? Infinite debt? Good luck. You can't do it even if you try. And some of you are trying. And honestly, that's why some of you have walked away from Christianity. Because it's not working. This is why some of your friends have walked away from Christianity, because they're trying, and they're trying, and they're trying, and they're exhausted, and it's not working. But like I said, either you pay it, which you can't, or God pays it. And when Jesus dies on the cross, that is what he is doing. He is absorbing the cost of that infinite-sized debt. If I can put it this way, it takes a God-sized payment to pay off a God-sized debt. And when he's dying on the cross, what does he say? It is finished. Which means if you come to Jesus by faith, and we talked about what that means last week, but but faith just means that you come with nothing in your hands. Nothing to offer him, nothing to impress him with, just coming empty-handed, nothing but your own junk and your own guilt. And the claim of the gospel is, when you do that, he receives you, embraces you, and looks at you and says, forgiven. Everything. Past, present, and future. Nothing you can do will ever sabotage or jeopardize his loving forgiveness for you. That's the claim. It is finished. It's done fully and finally. So if you have done something or you think about something and you say, this is so, I feel so guilty. I feel so shameful about this. There is no way God could ever forgive me for this. You haven't seen how beautiful and, and amazing and magnificent and infinite the cross is. Because what the cross communicates to you is no matter what you think, feel, or do, past, present, or future, it does not matter how heinous, how terrible, how disgusting, how shameful. Jesus looks at you and says, it's forgiven. 
I've paid for it, and I have nothing but love for you. I'm not reserving little punishments for you that I'm going to dole out if you screw up again. It is yours fully, freely. And you know what this does? And I'll end with this. When you begin to actually grab, like, grab a hold of that in your heart, Jesus stops becoming a handyman to you. You know what I mean? He stops becoming someone that you just relate to and just want him to kind of fix up and patch up your life here and there. He stops becoming your handyman and he becomes your savior. That is to say, he stops becoming useful to you and he starts becoming beautiful. And you move away from exhaustion and weariness and anxiety and guilt and shame and you move into joy and rest and wonder and worship, that's what Jesus is offering. But really, the, 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 the statement is this. Either you have to pay for your sin, or God does. And so what's it going to be? Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would give us faith. Give us the grace to really embrace this forgiveness that is so, in some ways, it's just um, it's too good to be true. It's hard to even believe even talking about it, that as we look and take an inventory of all the, all the skeletons in our closet, all the shame and the guilt that we have tucked away and buried away that we don't want anyone to ever know about, that it's, it's in those places that you come in and say, forgiven. It is finished. Father, give us eyes to see, to to, to even taste the beauty and the, the sweetness of your grace and your forgiveness. Help us to believe it. Help us to live in light of it. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.